1: Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising, so after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. Now, I don't mean thieves stole
2: stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes, and this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, "I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone." Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need Home Title Lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. lock.com.
3: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
1: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. I want to start with a a couple of things that are in the news that I think are really consequential. First of all, obviously, the revelations in John Bolton's book. This is at the top of the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's all over the place. Everybody's talking about it on television. John Bolton supplied his book to the White House. Remember, last week, I said that, actually, I've said this several times, I think that one of the reasons why John Bolton is actually trying to testify has publicly announced that he's available to testify is because when you work for a federal agency that handles classified information, if you write a book, you have to submit it to that agency and have them basically vet it. Say, okay, this is fine, but this is classified. You're going to have to either take it out or figure out another way to say it that doesn't reveal classified information, etc. It's a not uncommon process. It can take a few months. And obviously, you know Bolton worked in the Trump White House, and so Donald Trump has final say in what's in the book, because you, know he can claim executive privilege. Bolton was his national security advisor. He was one of his closest advisors. The whole point of presidential privilege, essentially executive privilege, is that a president is the theory that a president has to always feel free to candidly discuss with his advisors policy issues in a way that he knows will never be revealed to the public. So he can discuss, like, you know, insane worst-case scenarios. You know, what happens if, you know, we nuke Moscow or something like that? I mean, just just totally off-the-wall stuff. But the one thing is, the one exception to executive privilege is that if you are breaking the law, and this is the exception that was defined before the Supreme Court in the Nixon case, U.S. v. Nixon, back in 1974, the one exception to the privilege is that if the conversation that happened in the white house involved the breaking of a law then you can't claim privilege so in any case bolton's wants to get his book out right it's already available for pre-order on amazon and powell's and you know other websites other book websites and of course you can walk into any local bookstore and pre-order it right now but the publisher can't publish it until the white house says okay it's cool And the White House, you know, Trump this morning was pretending he hasn't even seen the book. There's this whole thing going on with Trump and Netanyahu right now. where Netanyahu is over here to try to lend some support to Trump. Trump is rolling out a peace plan. i now put that in quotes, you know, it was written by Jared, apparently, with no input from the Arabs, or I shouldn't say that, from the Palestinians, excuse me. So obviously it's dead on arrival. But it will be popular among the citizens of Israel, or at least the Jewish citizens of Israel. There's a small minority of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian. It will be popular among, basically, Netanyahu's base. So Trump is giving Netanyahu a gift right now, as Netanyahu is standing for re-election. And, you know, down the road, Netanyahu will give Trump a gift. So Netanyahu and Trump showed up in, at the White House this morning and a reporter said President Trump what do you think about you know what John Bolton is claiming and Trump said well nothing was ever said to Bolton speaking in the passive voice and a third person passive voice he didn't say I never said anything he said nothing was said right so i think he thinks he can avoid perjury or something like that or being you know called out on an open lie but this this whole thing really brings to mind the fact that this is the second time we've seen the White House try to cover up documented evidence. And the last time was Justice Bierbong. You know, when Brett Kavanaugh was before the United States Senate after Anthony Kennedy, just to rewind a little bit, Anthony Kennedy's son worked at Deutsche Bank and signed off on apparently well over a billion dollars worth of loans to Trump. And now, you know, there's some substantial reporting suggesting that the reason Deutsche Bank felt comfortable to give these loans to Trump, even though he was so bankrupt, he declared bankruptcy multiple times, he'd lost his casinos and everything else. Not everything else, but, you know, he'd lost a lot and he was underwater and literally no American bank would loan him money anymore. And that the only reason Deutsche Bank would do this was because they were being backstopped by a Russian bank. And this is why Trump is hiding his tax returns, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, Justice Bierbong was being nominated to replace Anthony Kennedy, whose son signed off on Trump's loans and who a few weeks earlier Trump had seen at an event and said, say hi to your boy for me. And then Kennedy decides to resign. Kennedy's in good health. He's fine. He's still walking around, you know, doing low key events and things. But Kennedy resigns, and in comes Justice Bierbong. And Justice Bierbong used to work in the Bush administration as a lawyer, and he apparently, this is, you know, because all this stuff has been successfully covered up, he apparently was working on the torture memos, saying, yeah, it's fine, you want to torture people, no problem. Or at least that's what some have alleged and many have speculated. So there were hundreds of thousands of documents from Kavanaugh's time in the Bush White House during, you know, the war on Afghanistan and Iraq that the White House never released. They absolutely refused to release and the Senate and the Democrats of the Senate were yelling and screaming about this. But Mitch McConnell would not allow this stuff out. And they successfully covered that up. And, and you know, now we have Justice Beerbong instead of just, you know, Judge Beerbong so now we learn that bolton turned the manuscript for his book over to the white house on december 30th now december 30th is what three weeks ago four weeks ago this was this was a month ago he turned this thing over to the white house to vet it and trump this morning said well i haven't seen it right I believe he hadn't read it because he doesn't read books it's one of the things that apparently endears him to his base but it raises the question i mean if the white house has known for a month that this was coming out and the white house has known he was going to reveal that as late as august that trump was still trying to withhold aid to ukraine it was in August, you know, when it came out that they were looking at Joe and Hunter Biden. So, A, you know, is he going to be able to pull this off? Are we going to see Republicans peel off? And B, you know, like he did with Justice Bierbong, I mean, he actually successfully covered that up, covered up Kavanaugh's crimes in the Bush administration. Is he going to be able to cover up his own crimes? I don't know. The pressure's building, but I saw two Republican senators on TV this morning saying, this doesn't change anything. We've already heard these allegations. And we also know from, uh, apparently, from Bolton's book, from the New York Times uh, reporting on Bolton's book, they've seen it, was that the senior national security officials in the Trump administration, possibly including Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo, thought Trump was making a mistake by withholding this aid, that it was illegal. But they're going to cover his butt, right? So, you know, is he going to be able to pull this off? And what did Moscow Mitch know, and when did he know it? Right. It was uh, December 30th was the day that Bolton's book went to the White House. Two weeks later, to the day, Mitch McConnell on Fox News told Sean Hannity, quote, everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with the White House counsel. Did the White House lawyers know about this? If so, have they perjured themselves? Or, you know, are they exempt from perjury? I mean, if a lawyer knows that his client is guilty and says that his client is not guilty, does that, you know, I don't know enough about... The uh, intricacies of what lawyers can and cannot do. I believe that that's not perjury, but I don't know. Meanwhile, Jennifer Rogers is tweeting. I think this is fascinating. Trump tweeted this morning I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. He explicitly denies it. But he's at the same time saying, I'm not going to tell you because that's executive privilege. My conversations with Bolton are privileged. Well, Jennifer Rogers is tweeting publicly engaging in the content of these conversations waives your right to claim privilege because you've already talked about them in public. Oops. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out. And I'm curious your thoughts on how this is going to play out. I also, after the break, I want to get into the uh, Virginia and the Equal Rights Amendment. This is fascinating what the Republicans are up to. And Trump has got a, n- a new plan here to kneecap not just Medicare and Social Security. What she's already tried to do. Most people are unaware of this. I'll share that with you. But also to kneecap Medicaid. And it's actually moving forward. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dick in Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Dick says you disagree with me about what?
4: Don't disagree with you, Tom. I just was telling your screener that you said what the Democratic Party did on TV. Adam Schiff, to me, did not say it, what the truth. He was knocking our president. He was going against words of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence.
1: Can you give and me I'm one example, that. Dick, of what you're asserting?
4: I'm asserting that this man falsely.
1: Accused no, I'm asking our you to give me an example.
4: I mean abuse of power. I mean corruption. How can he be corrupt? He only made a call to the the Russian retaining. This man has got us jobs, Tom. This man needs a fair trial.
1: The I, economy last year, Dick, grew at 2.1%. Do you know what the okay. average the average annual rate of growth was during the Obama years? Well, what? It was 2. It, it was good. 2.4%. Point four, okay and trump is 2.1%. This man is not getting us jobs, Dick. This man is sitting in office while the Obama expansion, the Obama the, the, you know the, the legislation that yeah. Obama got yeah. through that put the economy back on track continues. That's all. You don't owe him your job. You don't owe him any loyalty at all. And the fact of the matter is that if the president of the United States takes $391 million appropriated by Congress for one of our allies to protect themselves in the middle of a war that's already killed 15,000 of their citizens, if the president of the United States withholds that $391 million because he wants that other country to find dirt on his political opponent, that is a crime. Okay. But I'm saying, do you think the
4: Republicans or... or try to bail him out of this impeachment. Uh, thing? Of course,
1: they're, they're trying the best they can. You know, Donald Trump gave you know one and a half trillion dollars in tax breaks, and most of the majority, probably all of the Republicans in Congress are multimillionaires in the Senate. I mean, there's some very, yeah. very, very rich guys in there, and Trump lowered their taxes. Not to mention the fact that you know, if Trump goes down, if either Trump is damaged by this or Pence becomes president and Pence is a weak president, you know, if you don't. Have have a strong guy at the top of the ticket you're going to see down ticket you know senate and house house representatives races you're going to start losing so yeah this has the potential to really hurt the republican party at the polls in november and they're all looking at that and doing the math and and everything else
4: okay i got your book tom it's pretty good buddy which book Thank you. which one what would Jefferson do? That's a good. Oh, book. yeah, that's an
1: old it. one. Yeah, okay. Dick, thanks a lot for the call. I, I appreciate the call, and and okay. uh, you know, Bye-bye. yeah, good talking to you. you call anytime. You know, I, also after the break, I want to get into a conversation that I had this weekend about. You know, there's all this uh, discussion about Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren, and I want to propose a new strategy for progressives with regard to the debate or discussion or whatever over which of those two candidates would be a better candidate to be president of the united states imagine this valentine's day story is you You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice those wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You will look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crows feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to triplexiderm.com and enter voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter voices at triplexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1 800 685 1292 and mentioning the code voices. Plexiderm is backed by a 30 day money back guarantee. So to get my special discount, enter voices at triplexiderm.com. That's voices at triplexiderm.com. This is the Tom Hartman program. Our book in today's Tom Hartman Book Club is by Harvey J. K. Professor Harvey K. Take Hold of Our History: Make America Radical Again. This is from the introduction. On December 1st, 1862, in the midst of the Civil War, just weeks before he was to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. President Abraham Lincoln delivered his annual message to Congress. Lincoln firmly believed that the United States had an historic responsibility to demonstrate to the world that people can govern themselves, make equal rights not just a self-evident truth, but a manifest one, and create a political and economic order in which working people, both white and black, are not compelled to bow to anyone, neither aristocrats nor capitalists. Empowered by tens of thousands of black slaves who were already liberating themselves from bondage by escaping to the Union lines, and increasingly confident that the majority of his fellow Americans would recognize the truth of what he was saying, Lincoln closed his address by calling on them to see that the time had come to remember who they were and what that demanded. He told them that to save the nation and all that it represented, they must live up to the nation's declared revolutionary purpose and promise an act to radically enhance American freedom by bringing an end to slavery. This is a quote from Lincoln's address. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We... Even we here hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. End of quote from Lincoln. Back to Harvey. We too cannot escape history. Our own struggle to save the nation and the promise it proclaims has begun. Finally, after more than 40 years of fear-driven class war and culture war campaigns against the democratic achievements of generations, the hard-won rights of workers, women and people of color, and the very memory of how they were secured, and now both in the wake of the election debacle of 2016, which gave the presidency to the corrupt, mendacious, racist, sexist, And treacherous demagogue Donald Trump, and continued control of Congress to the formerly conservative but increasingly reactionary Republican Party, and in the face of intensified class and culture war campaigns, we the people have come not only to recognize that American democratic life is in jeopardy, but also to mobilize in hopes of saving it. Millions of us have rallied to the resistance and expressed our democratic fears and desires in action. In the historic women's march and march for our lives of young people, the protests, demonstrations, and legal actions to defend the lives and rights of immigrants and refugees, the Me Too movement to combat sexual assault and harassment, the massive teacher strikes for higher pay and better funding of public schools in states red and blue, and the enthusiastic canvassing and campaigning For a blue wave to win back congress in the 2018 midterm elections but resistance is not enough the time has come for us to remember who we are and what that demands the time has come for us to embrace our radical history the history of how a generation of americans high and low and in all their diversity not only turned their colonial rebellion into a war for independence but also imbued american life whether they all intended it or not with radical imperative and impulse by declaring a revolutionary promise of freedom, equality, and democracy for all. The history of how generations of radicals and reformers served as the prophetic memory of that promise and how generations of ordinary men and women, native born and immigrant, struggled to make real the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to expand not only the we in we the people, but also the powers of the people and most especially in view of the crises we ourselves face, the history of how our greatest generations confronted and prevailed over the forces that threatened to destroy the nation and bury its revolutionary promise in the 1770s, 1860s, and 1930s and 1940s, not to mention the 1960s, by acting to make the United States, both inspired by Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and pushing them to go further than they might otherwise have gone, radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. The time has come to take hold of that history and make America radical again. I've titled this collection of my speeches and essays, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, for reasons that will become obvious, and yet I cannot help but confess that if I had had to title it otherwise, I would have been sorely tempted to use, with full attribution, the title Max Lerner gave to his 1938 work, It is later than you think the need for a militant democracy while it may not seem so the crisis we face is no less demanding of action urgent action than that which confronted his generation the book take hold of our history by harvey jk so a couple things i wanted to talk about i'm going to get to the era and medicaid and medicare and all that kind of stuff in just a moment but over the weekend An old friend of mine from D.C., who is way up in the Democratic National Committee, without going into a lot of detail, he is on several of the committees that will decide how the convention is run. He is a superdelegate. He will be able to vote on the second round of balloting if that happens. There hasn't been a second round of balloting, by the way, since 1952, but there might be this time. And I learned some things that I actually didn't know, and and I wanna share this with you. To start out, at the convention, there will be roughly 4,000 delegates, and then there's around 800 superdelegates. It's 700 and high change, 780 or thereabouts, and and roughly 4,000 delegates. So if somebody is going to win on the first round, they're gonna have to have 2,000 delegates roughly. If they don't win on the first round, then on the second round, in come the 780 superdelegates, and of them, probably 740 of them are going to go with Biden, or whoever the corporate candidate is who is at the top at that point, Buttigieg or Klobuchar. Presumably. Maybe even, well it won't be Tom Steyer, but you know, maybe Bloomberg. So one of the things that we know from all the polling has been done is that Bernie's supporters and Elizabeth Warren's supporters do not perfectly overlap. A percentage of Bernie supporters will not vote for Warren. And best guess is it's around somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. In the primary, I mean, if she, if she was president, they would vote for her in a heartbeat, if she was the nominee, but they won't vote for her. And, uh, even if, if Bernie was to drop out, see, in the polls, what they've been doing is they've been saying, okay, who's your first pick for president? Then they say, who's your second pick? So a certain percentage of Bernie supporters, and I don't have the numbers here, but it's a, it's, a, it's a significant slice, as their second choice is not Warren. It's Buttigieg, or it's Klobuchar, or it's somebody else, uh, Gabbard. And a larger chunk, actually, of Warren voters, their second choice is not Bernie. And these are probably mostly women who uh, were supporters of Hillary and still feel you know, bad feelings toward Bernie. So if either Bernie or Warren were to drop out of the race, the remaining person probably can't hit 2,000 delegates in June. So the strategy that we need to pursue is if you're a Warren supporter, continue being a Warren supporter and fight as hard as you can. If you're a Bernie supporter, continue being a Bernie supporter and fight as hard as you can. But we also need to support each other. And go into the Democratic National Convention, essentially as a a coalition. Not calling it that, not saying that. And then, if we can get 2,000, you know, if it looks like, well, actually it won't even look like, we'll know in June if there are 2,000 delegates for a progressive candidate, either Bernie or uh, Liz Warren. And if there are 2,000 candidates, at that point, Bernie and Warren, between the two of them, Neither one of them are going to get 2000 I can guarantee you that. If, if there are 2000 then they have to sit down like Obama and Clinton did in 2008 and say, what do you want? They have to negotiate. And if it ends up Bernie's at the top of the ticket, Warren may say, I'd like to be vice president or, hey, make me treasury secretary. And if it looks like Warren's going to be at the top of the ticket, Bernie may say, make me vice president or, hey, I'd like to be head of uh, HEW uh... you know housing and and health and 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 you know i can do single-payer health care that way or whatever but they will have to work it out between the two of them in private essentially and we will end up with a nominee who is a progressive so let me just lay that on you this is really important stuff that a we don't take the cnn bait where the cnn leaks this oh you know a woman can't win. all this bs that we not take that bait and fight between, you know, the Warren faction and the Sanders faction, that we remain united as progressives.
3: You're listening to the Tom Hartman program.
1: Because what CNN was trying to do was not just jack ratings for the debate. They're also trying to take down the progressive block, which is Sanders and Warren. Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together, and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Let me just uh, add to my my little rant, you know, just before we hit the break there in the last segment, that Warren and Sanders voters need to stick together rather than fight with each other. Parts of this were a revelation to me because I didn't know the actual math, how it was going to work out in the convention but i did know that back a couple of weeks ago six national groups came out and basically supported both candidates and some of those groups have already endorsed bernie our revolution the sunrise movement and roots action have all publicly endorsed bernie working families party uh, has uh, openly endorsed elizabeth warren justice democrats and democracy for america have not endorsed anybody these six groups issued a press release at 8 a.m. January 16th, saying, we offer the statement as independent organizations, some support Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, or are not currently supporting any candidate for president. For those with a declared preference, this statement in no way signals the slightest decrease in that commitment. Instead, this statement is a shared declaration of our belief that the surest way to defeat Trump is for the Democratic Party to nominate either Warren or Sanders as these are the candidates best able to energize voters by providing a vision of a decent society and a fair economy. This vision is sorely needed, as is an administration that will implement far reaching reforms toward a more just society. Our best chance of defeating Trump does not lie with an establishment, or corporate Democrat. The anti-establishment, anti-corporate awareness and anger that characterize American society today are justified And it would be a huge mistake to once again yield to ground that ground to a phony like Trump. We can do better and we'll work to persuade Democrats to choose a strong progressive nominee. Sanders and Warren, as well as their campaigns and supporters, will need to find ways to cooperate. The crossfire amplified by the media is unhelpful and does not reflect the relationship between two Senate colleagues who broadly worked well together for most of the last year. We hope to build solidarity between the candidates and et cetera. It goes on from there. You can easily track it down. Just plug into your search engine National Progressive Groups Make Unity Statement on Democratic Primary. I mentioned uh, two other things, the ERA and healthcare. I want to just run through those real quickly. Virginia has voted or is, is about to vote to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment simply says that you may not, no one can discriminate against anybody in the United States based on gender or based on sex is the word it uses, but it's, you know, it's language that goes back to the 1930s and maybe the 1920s in fact. And if Virginia passes this, then we now have it's already passed by a two-thirds vote in the senate and the house and so all it requires is three-fourths of the states to become an amendment to the u.s constitution now the version that passed the house and senate way back in the day this was like 20 30 years ago that it passed had a time limit on it, it said it had to be done within 10 years there is a strong argument to be made that that time limit is not constitutional or is irrelevant, basically, that it has, it has been voted on by the House and Senate. And so now it requires three quarters of the states. And if Virginia passes it, that will be three quarters of the states. And so the Trump Justice Department, this is Bill Barr, just issued a memo saying that the deadline to ratify has expired. And in response, the attorney general for Virginia, Mark Herring, said, quote, it is wholly unsurprising that the Trump administration has found yet another way to oppose women's equality. Women in America deserve to have equality guaranteed in the Constitution. The fact that Republican attorneys general are suing to block the Equal Rights Amendment and that they now have the support of the Trump administration is absolutely repugnant. And then you know the states that have not yet voted to ratify the ERA, although if Virginia does vote, that's three quarters of the states, but the states that haven't voted so far are Arizona, Utah, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. And I believe that with the possible exception of Arizona and Utah, and I'm just frankly not sure about them, I think every one of these other states is a former slave state. Women's rights now, we don't need no stinking women's rights. Finally, back in 2016, when Trump was running for president, Judd Legum has a great piece on this in his newsletter today at popular.info. Trump said, and I quote, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to gut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, and even if they wouldn't, they don't know what to do because they don't know where the money is. I do, whatever the hell that means. But he's basically said he's not going to, to uh, cut Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. Well, he's already broken that promise. When the official Trump administration budget was dropped last year, I mean, you know, dropped on the table, dropped on the floor of the Senate and House, Trump proposed $1.9 trillion in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. Now, Congress chose not to go along with those proposed cuts, so they didn't make it into the budget that was passed last, I believe it was October. Maybe it was September, but whatever. So they didn't go along with Trump's cuts. But he actually proposed these cuts. I mean, this this is probably the most underreported story in America that the Trump administration has already proposed cutting $1.9 trillion out of Medicare and Medicaid and $26 billion out of Social Security. Now they're proposing to slash Medicaid. And the way that they're going to do it is proposing block grants. And the reason why the states are excited about doing this, and and Tennessee is the example, in November of last year, just two months ago, Tennessee wrote a letter to the Department of Social Security and Medicare, whatever it's called, that they wanted to receive their Medicaid funding as a block grant. Now, right now, let's say that Tennessee, you know, the states administer the Medicaid money. Medicaid is, you know, if you're old and in a nursing home or if you are low income or in poverty and you you need health care, that's Medicaid. And so let's say Tennessee is using eight billion dollars worth of medicaid money every year which is about what they're using right now is 7.9 billion last year so they're using eight billion dollars so if they get an eight billion dollar block grant that is approved in advance for the year so they know they've got eight billion dollars coming from the federal government if the tennessee legislature then changes their medicaid requirement laws so that you know a percentage of the people on Medicaid in Tennessee no longer qualify for Medicaid. Let's say that, you know, in order to qualify for Medicaid in Tennessee, you have to have an income of below $5,000 a year. I don't know what the threshold is, but there is a threshold. Typically, it's between two dollars and $5,000, and every state has a threshold. Let's say it's $5,000 in Tennessee. So they're, they're getting $8 billion from the federal government. Let's say they take that $5,000 threshold and say, no, you've got to earn under $2,000 to get Medicaid. So they're able to knock off Let's say, you know, $2 billion worth of expenses, $2 billion worth of money, of health care money that goes to poor people, low income people. What happens to that $2 billion? Tennessee gets to keep it. They can just put it in their treasury. They can use it, you know, for a a giant party for the governor. Ron Wyden, my senator here from Oregon, And Frank Pallone, the Democrat from New Jersey, wrote a letter to the Inspector General of the Department of HSS and said that this is illegal, what Tennessee is proposing to do. Well, what the Trump administration is now saying is they want to change the rules for Medicaid so that not only can Tennessee do what they're proposing, but that every state can do this. Every red state that doesn't want to give health care to their people can do this. And when you think about it, that's pretty mind-boggling. Anyhow, to your calls, Tom in Springfield, Illinois. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today?
5: Hey, good afternoon. I was watching Stephanie Miller's show before your show came on, and you said a little breaking news that Ron Johnson from Wisconsin made the statement that uh, Bolton is obviously telling the truth. Now, what that means in the long run, I don't know, because he's a, a Trump supporter, but if we can peel off a few more of those, maybe we'll get some witnesses.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's going to take four and odds are that if, if we get four, they'll be eight or nine or 10 or something like that. And Ron Johnson's in a unique position, Tom. And Tom, thank you for the call and for, for making that point. Ron Johnson's in a unique position because he was actually in a meeting that included, as I recall, uh, Sondland. Sondland testified that, you know, Ron Johnson basically knew about the drug deal. Johnson has basically said that he didn't know about the drug deal, but there's a whole pile of evidence that he actually did. Charles And so, you know, maybe he's trying to walk this back or trying to clean it up. I don't know, clean up his karma. Charles in Haywood, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's up?
3: My thing is this. I think we're missing the little final points. And meaning as far as this impeachment in the Senate. Usually in a corporate setting, if you have an employee that's, that you keep hearing, we're going to go to the lawyers or, we're you know, go see the lawyers you know something is wrong. And what I mean by that is now I'm translating it to the Senate. You have seasoned senators that's been there for so long, you know, and they know if they keep hearing over and over that someone was saying, go see the lawyers, something had to be more than wrong.
1: Right, which is what Bolton was saying to basically everybody within sight about the this whole uh, so-called drug deal, you know, the attempted bribery of Zelensky. Yes.
3: I do have one more theory about Bolton. Yeah. I think, of course, he doesn't want to be on the outs of Fox News and the Republicans, but I think he's so repulsed by this president that, you know, we need to go out we need to make a public plea to him that he needs to be more of a patriot because he was sickened by someone like Trump. And, you know, it, it
1: pushed him to the point where he was he was willing to just... Um, right. and, and if Trump way? is sickening a warmonger like Bolton, he's pretty bad. I think it's possible, Charles. I think it's possible that Bolton will, you know, join... Hang on just a second. We're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video
1: archive. The Bolton will end up joining people like David Jolly and Bill Kristol. I mean, these neocon Republicans and, uh, you know, in trashing Trump. We'll see. Professor Richard Wolf. <laughs> Professor Wolf is an economist. He's the co founder of Democracy at Work. Democracy Work.info is the website. He's the author of numerous books, including Understanding Marxism, his latest Understanding Socialism, rdwolf.com, and Democracy at Info, his websites, and you can tweet him at Prof and there's two F's in Wolf. Professor, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I shared with you kind of eccentric newsletter I get. I subscribe to this investment newsletter called Aiden Forecast, and they've got a guy who does a daily little rant. And he was talking about how, uh, in his opinion, and his opinion tends to be a little on the right, but in any case, Chuck was writing about how he thinks that GDP and unemployment, that the economy that the numbers that are being cited by the Trump administration do not reflect the reality of the economy, first of all. And secondly, that they might even actually be cooking the books beyond the extreme to which the books are normally cooked. Bernie Sanders has been talking about this for years, that that we're using the wrong measure of unemployment, we're using the wrong measures for inflation and things like that. What are your thoughts on all this?
6: You're quite right. It is an old debate. Economists have been from the right and the left i might say have been skeptical about the statistics both on theoretical grounds but also on the grounds that political interference by the people who sit on top of the government pyramid to try to get reelected by cooking the books is fairly obvious some of that is going on most of the time it's very hard to know exactly how much or how big of an impact it has having said all of that One of the points that uh, Aiden makes that is very valid is a very simple idea. If you're going to get record levels of unemployment low, that is, you're giving large numbers of people some sort of job, then it is likely that you're going to have to see a kind of extraordinary rate of economic growth because unless the economy is growing. Pretty heftily, it's not going to be able to absorb simply the new people, the teenagers growing up and entering the labor force as they become adults. If you're going to keep the people who are working working and accommodate the new entrance to the labor force, well, you have to be growing at a certain rate. The actual GDP growth in this country, which is itself a debatable measurement, hasn't been growing very quickly. President Trump promised he would make it do that, but that promise, like so many others, hasn't worked out. He promised with the tax cut in December of 2017 that it would really solve the problem of economic growth. He used numbers like 3 to 5 percent, which for the United States would be stunning achievement. He didn't get that achievement. He didn't get anywhere near it. Our basic growth rate over recent years hasn't changed under Mr. Trump and is in the middle between 2 and 3 percent. I mean, to give you an idea of what that means, in China, which has the worst economic growth rate in 25 years this year, they're getting 6.5%, which is two to three times what we get. So it's very hard to account for low unemployment numbers, record lows that Mr. Trump boasts about, when you don't have the economic growth that normally would be necessary. And Mr. Trump never even acknowledges this contradiction, let alone offers an explanation. So the letter you sent me is quite correct in saying, wait a minute, at the very least, you have to account for this weird result rather than pretending it isn't there.
1: Could it be that you've got more people working part-time jobs, fewer people working full-time jobs, and those people are all being counted as employed?
6: Yes, although my guess would be, since there are some numbers about part-timers and things like that, I would guess it's something else. And this is troubling, to say the least. What we've seen, not just over the last 10 years where it's been bad, but over the last 25, is the end of good jobs for millions and millions of Americans, jobs that pay well, Jobs where the real wage goes up each year, acknowledging that you're better at your job this year than you were last year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have seen the benefits that go with jobs being cut, particularly pensions, but others as well. And finally, we've seen the loss of secure jobs and the rise of insecure jobs, usually covered with euphemisms like the sharing economy or the gig economy, anything other than facing what it is, which is insecure jobs. Well, the end result of all of that especially after the crash of 2008 when millions lost their jobs, was that working people have lost their savings if they had any, can't go to their friends and relatives for more help because they've already been doing that. So here's what they have to do. They basically have to go to work somewhere for virtually anything, which is why we have so many part-time or poorly paid jobs, even if they're full-time, why we have a movement for $15 minimum, which doesn't get you much beyond the poverty line anyway, and millions don't even have that. So here's my guess. We are not growing the economy. We are seeing the small number of very wealthy people begin to have an army of servants. That's where the work is growing here in New York City, where I live, we now pay people to do your shopping for you, lots of them, to walk your dog, to clean your house, to take care of your pets. I mean, it's extraordinary the number of jobs that really don't add to the wealth of our society. They're really in the form of personal service that very wealthy people can afford, and that the rest of us are now forced more and more to go take. That might help explain why we have a lot of people working at awful jobs, and we don't see the economy as a whole growing.
1: I saw a statistic in the Financial Times over the weekend, and I'm doing this from memory, but I, I think I'm remembering it right. You're probably familiar with it. They said that 44, as I recall, 44% of the American workforce earns less than $18,000 a year. If that's the case, or if it's 40%, it's, you know, maybe. But if that's the case, then what you're suggesting it sounds to me could be re-described as we are seeing unemployment go down because more and more people are taking jobs of desperation.
6: Absolutely. There's no question that that's happening. The only question is, is that happening on a scale big enough to account for some of these big macro numbers that he's rightly pointing to about this contradiction between GDP growth on the one hand and low unemployment? It would be, it could be explained, we just don't know enough, but it could be explained by what we know is going on namely this transition which is upsetting so many americans on the left but also on the right This reality that you keep hearing the unemployment is low but your own circumstance is awful because yeah you have a job perhaps but it pays poorly it's insecure you're constantly anxiety written about this job, about the benefits being taken away from you, how in the world you're going to cope with your old age without a real pension, and now since you're compensating by borrowing too much money, you have the added anxiety of imagining what will happen to you if your job is interrupted and you can't make the necessary payments. You're producing a society that is broken into the small minority that are super rich, and a vast majority who, despite all of the verbiage, see their economic situation shrinking around them and become more and more upset, understandably.
1: So, wow, it's like the return of peonage. Two other quick questions. Uh, What's the impact of boomers aging out of the marketplace? And I guess the sub to that is, you know, how many of them are not aging out of the marketplace? You know, I'm over 65 and I'm still working. And secondly, if Trump starts pushing Powell to either hold or raise interest rates, on the assumption that he's not going to be the new president? Is it possible that he could provoke an economic crash that happens right after the election if we get a Democrat winning?
6: Well, let me answer both of them. It might have been a different story if the elderly, the people reaching retirement age 65 and above, had behaved like previous generations and retired, at least in roughly comparable numbers. They can't do it. Part of the fact that Social Security is so inadequate to live on, part of the fact that so many people are carrying levels of debt that undermine whatever Secure- Social Security might have intended to do, they're not retiring. They're going back to work, even if they have to take the job as, you know, a Walmart greeter or something like that that pays awfully. And of course, the longer the older folks stay in the, the job market, uh, the harder it is for the new young people coming in to find work which is exactly what then exacerbates low-wage jobs, because the new entrants are desperate and the old people are desperate, neither of them uh, able to escape from this situation. And as to your other point, absolutely. If Mr. Trump were to decide that he's losing, or even worse, if he decides having won, if he does, that he can't run again, so he might as well do something different. uh, Yeah, you, you could see all kinds of shifts coming because of what this guy does and what the Republicans behind him are willing to do. But no matter what happens, the deluge is coming. It's like King Louis in France at the time of the French Revolution made that famous comment, after me comes the deluge. Yeah, Mr. Trump, if he were honest, would be telling us there is a going to be a doozy when the next economic downturn comes. You put that together with these unparalleled levels of debt in our economy, and and there is no limit to how bad this might get. Well, he
1: has come right out and said, if a Democrat is elected president, there's going to be a huge economic crash. I think he might be planning on setting that up.
6: Yeah. You could see that a guy like that would be so wigged out by losing an election. I mean, he lost the last one and literally had to pretend he didn't. So, yeah, who knows what he might do. But I, the sad reality is even if he didn't, you've, you've set up a situation of overused debt that could come back to haunt anybody who becomes the next leader.
1: Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolff, thanks so much for being with us today.
6: Thank you, Tom.
1: Great talking with you. You can find Professor Wolf's work over at democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two Fs.com. and you can tweet him at profwolf, as in Professor Wolf. <music> Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you, Carol in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Carol, what's on or Carl? I'm sorry, Carl. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. I haven't been called Carol in a lot of years. <laughs> My apologies.
7: Uh, we, that's okay. We had an interesting conversation, uh, you and I, uh, a week or so ago, about tactical actions versus strategic. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had an idea and a concept, and it's born out of a sort of a belief of mine that Democrats fail miserably when it comes to me- uh, messaging, particularly when you're fighting a guy like Trump who really knows how to use the eight-word, five-second soundbite message. Yes. If i believe my research indicates that there are nine i could could be ten but i believe there's nine senators who have some apprehension about their reelection uh promises so they're susceptible as an audience to being swayed by public opinion to um to vote the right way during this trial
1: these are senators in so-called purple states yeah
7: yeah, the the purple one, and so on. Yeah. And there's a couple, I think, in actually red states, but they're they're they look pretty good for mm. for yeah. Like Tom, Tillis. Yep. So what I'm what I'm suggesting, or what I was wondering, why if the public, if the active, interested public, old, young, sideways, whatever, were interested in in doing something positive, I believe in getting out and doing something, don't just talk and moan about how bad things are. I love listening to your show, and it's wonderful to hear what the world is doing, but it always encourages me to get off my butt and do something. Good. Um, if, if somebody put out to the American public a list of nine senators and the states they're from, and maybe might even be a couple selected zip codes, when you call that main number at Congress, <clears throat> they say, thank you for calling the Capitol, what state or zip code do you want? <clears throat> or give me your zip code. So I don't do that, I just say what state. I've called all nine of them myself. I don't live in their states, but I've called all nine by saying, uh, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, here's the two senators. Well, I want uh, Lamar, uh, Alexander. And so I- Who's retiring
1: by by the way, maybe swayable.
7: I I know he is, I know. He is not susceptible, but I think there's another, I called him just because I know him. Mm -hmm. I, I lived in Tennessee for a while.
1: So your suggestion is that you know some group get put together this list and get it out there. I you know I don't think that's yeah. a bad idea. Are you familiar with the website dailycos.com KOS no, I'm not at all. Haven't this this was this is a website, a progressive website that was started maybe I don't know, 15 years ago thereabouts by a guy named Marcos Malitzas. He started it, I believe, early in the Bush administration. It's been around as long as my show's been around, and it has oh. grown to become one of the probably top five progressive websites in the country. And oh. they are very very active in electoral politics. They've got a little. Pack associated with them that's very transparent. You can see where the money goes in and how it goes out that supports yeah. uh, progressive candidates. They uh, regularly identify vulnerable candidates and organize campaigns. The key, of course, is to get people in those states calling uh, the numbers 202-224-3121 is the capital switchboard, 202-224-3121 yeah, yeah. or 225, either one. And so I would I would recommend you check that out, Carl. I think you may find the resource you're looking for is already there. Daily DAS I-L-Y-K-O-S dot com is the website. Carl, great to hear from you. I'm sorry we're out of time. It's good talking with you, though. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. Meanwhile, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump continues as he is writhing on Twitter. It's just insane. We'll be back. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back? I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. And part three is the solution section how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for The Hidden History of Voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series. On Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Sunday, February 23rd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell in Portland, and Sunday, March 1st, in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Fred in Minneapolis. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind?
5: Uh, hi, I'm calling about the... Uh republican strategy behind why they want to build the border wall mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like the democrats are quite catching it you have to put on your republican hat for this one but it's my understanding that texas and arizona and new mexico have become purple states and this they regard as a sort of existential crisis for uh, keeping the presidency mm-hmm. So putting on the Republican hat, what they want to do is they want to flood billions of dollars into these border towns, which means supplies and a lot of jobs and shopping centers and, you know, they think basically it's a job program for, by Republican thinking, because hmm. they think that the the purpose of welfare and Social Security and Medicare is to buy votes and to keep voter loyalty. Right. So if they get so they're, trying to, buy, they're trying to buy
1: their votes this way. That's an interesting theory, yeah. Fred. I mean, you know, Viktor Orban, when he was elected prime minister of Hungary about 10 years ago, he started ranting about the refugees, the Syrian refugees who were coming up through uh, Italy and Greece and, and into uh, Hungary and said that he was going to build a border wall along the entire southern border of Hungary, which was about four or 500 miles, as I recall. That was what his party was campaigning on, what he was campaigning on, and he actually did it. He built this wall. It was—it's you know razor wire and barbed wire, unlike you know our wall. But he built a wall along the southern border of Hungary, and Steve Bannon was very familiar with that, and uh, he recommended to Donald Trump that that building a wall should be part of his campaign. Trump was very skeptical about this. He thought it was a stupid idea, but he tried it out in one of his rallies. This is you know early on in the primary candidacy, and it got a great response from people. Oh yeah, keep those brown people out, you know. And And it works. So I guess you know what I'm saying is that it's apparently a two-part strategy. Anyhow, Fred, thanks for the call. I got to move along here. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Dave, we got a minute left. What's up?
0: Yeah, hey, not too much time. I wanted to comment on John Bolton's book and him going through the White House, you know, to make sure everything was above board. Yeah, that, you know, this tendency to accept Trump, you know, his word on everything classified, you know, he can declassify stuff, he can classify stuff, you know, that coupled with the fact that he appears to be above the law. Is extremely troubling. Every American should be worried about that. And I I think of the caller that called in and said something about the intelligentsia. He referred to the Hmm. United States' intelligence services as the intelligentsia. Well, no, I think he was, I
1: assumed he was talking about smart people, but who knows? Anyhow.
0: Well, well, no, and I'm not being critical of him. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, there's other callers that call up and say, "Well, you know, I'm very liberal, but maybe we should just go to war with Russia." This is a false. This is a false um, comparison. All right. The bottom line is, that the Church Commission during um, Viet, right after Vietnam established uh, intelligence oversight. When we went to war in Iraq, George Bush got rid of that, except at the very highest level. You, you know, and to get. You know, and everybody says, "Well, we still have oversight," but no, we really don't, because that the the intelligence oversight is really governed by the executive, which is the president, and happens to be Trump at this time. A president that's above the law and can classify anything he or she wants is a turnkey tyrant.
1: Yeah, and the thing that really concerned me was when he extended that power to Bill Barr, the attorney general, you know, to basically cover up anything. Dave, thanks for the call. Bill Barr, of course, the cover-up general. I think my piece is over on Raw Story right now. It's uh, it was on alternate over the weekend about bill barr cover-up artist extraordinaire i'm sure if you plug his name and mine into a search engine you'll find it anyhow thanks so much for being with us today we'll be back tomorrow same time same place in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport so please get out there share the good word with your friends tag your it and tell people how they can find progressive media how they can find this program and the other great progressive shows out there thanks again Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.